And so this morning, we're going to be diving into a tough subject for many people, and it is the topic of families and fighting, because every family that I know, they have those times when they fight. And so how do we deal with that? What does scripture say about that? And so we're going through, as we go through this new series entitled Hashtag Family, we're just dealing with family issues because your family is great. We want the best for your family. Our church wants to come alongside and partner with your family and to help your family to uh, grow and to be strong and to be all that God has called your family to be. And so to do that, we want to equip your family with tools. We want to look at scripture. And so we are studying really the life of Abraham and Sarah. And we've been kind of going through and, and kind of looking into their life. And it's almost like they've kind of lived in a glass house for us the last couple of weeks. And we're able to peer in and we're able to look in on what decisions they made, uh, what they did right and what they may have done wrong. And we're able to lead our lives accordingly. And we're able to say, you know what? This is where the Lord is leading us. This is not where God has for us. And so we're really excited about this series. And I know it's been a help to many. And uh, we're going to jump right back into it because as we kick off this series, we've had one thought in mind. It's that all families fight. But we just need to be fighting for what's important. And so when we look at this. So last week we dealt with um, what do you do when your ideal family doesn't match your real family. We talked about the blended family. We talked about how uh, many times we go into marriage or relationship or a job or many things. We go in with this ideal. And then what happens after a while is that what ideal turns into what is very real. And we looked at how to deal with that and how to deal with the real things in our life. And how God does give strength to the struggle. And there is grace for that guilt. And so we can see that God can work even through some of the things that we may have done right and the things we may have done wrong. God's grace is still there. And so this week, we're going to jump into this passage. And if you have your Bible or your worship guide, you can open it. We're going to go to Genesis chapter number 13. We're going to backtrack. We've been going through. We've hit Genesis chapter number 15, 16, 17. And we were supposed to jump to 18, but we're going to jump back to chapter 13. And as you're turning there... Have you ever noticed that families just fight? And have you ever asked yourself, why do families fight? I mean, in the sense that families that were supposed to be a place of love, a place of support, a place of um, uh, just that camaraderie, a place where there is um, protection, there is that place where you feel safe. But yet, even though family has all those elements to it, families can still fight. Families can still argue. Families can still bicker. And uh, maybe another question would be, does your family fight? And some of you immediately don't, you don't have to nod your head, you don't have to do anything, but I just want you to think internally for a second. But if you ever ask yourself the next question, is there a way to get your family to stop fighting? And for some of you, yeah, it's just give my kids my wallet. It's just kind of uh, uh, say yes to whatever my spouse wants, or it's just kind of um, uh, just kind of ignore them, ignore the problem. But how are you solving the issue? How are you solving the fighting that takes place? What are you doing to resolve it? So many times we look at scripture. And uh, we see things, we see uh, so many ways we can deal with something, but yet we don't apply it 
oftentimes we can fill our heads with good information, but it is not the information that we need. It is the application that we need. And as you study the Gospels, Jesus' teaching, 70% of his teaching was geared toward application. Only 30% was just informational. So when it comes to scripture, what we need to do, and when it comes to these messages, what our job needs to be is, how can I apply this to my life? And I'm going to try to put the truth that I bring on the bottom shelf. I'm going to try to make it as clear and concise as possible. I'm not trying to aim over your head. I'm not trying to go, go down deep and stay down long and come up dry. I don't want that for you, and that's not what I am. And I want you to be able to take some practical things. And so as we look at this passage, I hope God will reveal some practical truths. But before we do that let's go to God in prayer and let's ask God to bless our service you did great singing in Revelation chapter number four verse number 11 the Bible says thou art worthy O God to receive glory honor and praise and it is for this reason that we are created so when we sing this morning as we engage in the message this morning understand this is an act of worship And worship isn't based on how we feel. Worship is not based on how your morning is going and whether or not you had your coffee. We worship God because he's worthy, not because of how we feel. He is worthy to receive our worship. He is worthy to receive our praise. He is worthy in this church, in every church. He's worthy in America. He's worthy all around the world. So as you come this morning, I want you to engage in worship, not because, oh, you just want to hear a good message, but because God is worthy. And worship is more than just the music. Right now, we are continuing our worship service. And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter number 13. But before we really dive in, I need to give you a little bit of the backstory to Genesis chapter number 13. We're talking about Abraham. Abraham is basically an Old Testament sheik in the sense of he was a nomad. He was very wealthy. He traveled about the the land of what is present-day Israel. In the Bible, they talk about the land of Canaan, and this is where uh, Abraham was traveling. In chapter 12, God appears to Abraham and says, Abraham, you need to get out of the land of Ur. And so Abraham follows the Lord's leading, because where he was was an idolatrous land. They worship many false gods. And so here, the one true God, Jehovah, speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, you need to leave this place. You need to go unto a city, unto a place that I will show you. And Abraham simply obeyed God, even though God didn't hand him a map. God didn't hand him a special GPS unit. God didn't give him a new iPhone and says, hey, just follow this and you'll know where to go. He just simply went by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so he comes to the land of Canaan. He comes to a place that is called Bethel and Ai. He comes to that place right by what would be um, uh, the place by the Jordan River kind of meets the Dead Sea. It's kind of in that upper area. If you pull out a map, you'd be able to see it. And that's where he kind of lands. Well, when Abraham gets there, He's following the Lord's leading. He's left his family. He's left what he knows, and he goes out and he follows God. And as soon as he gets to the place where God has for him, guess what happens? A famine hits the land. 
Now, in that time, a famine usually was triggered by a drought, meaning there was no rain, and so the, the grass wasn't growing, so he couldn't feed his livestock. And if you can't feed your livestock, you can't provide resources for your family. He's a nomad. He depended on his horses, his cattle, his camel. He depended on these things. And so if he wasn't able to feed them, he would eventually waste away, and he could end up losing everything. But God had led him there. And he goes to that place, but instead of trusting that God can lead him somewhere and then take care of him in that place, he goes down, the Bible says, to Egypt. And in Egypt, there was plenty of resources. And in Egypt, he goes down to Egypt. And it's interesting, whenever you see that language that he went down to Egypt, Egypt always pictured in the Bible as a place of spiritual digression, as a kind of taking a back step to where God wants you to be. It's kind of a, there's an old school term. It's almost like backsliding. Like you were once really excited about the things of God. You were once doing right. And all of a sudden you kind of slid back. So the terminology going down to Egypt kind of signifies this. He goes to Egypt, but on the way to Egypt, he has a conversation with his wife. And I hope you've never had this conversation. Abraham is 75 years old and he looks over at his wife who's 10 years younger, meaning she's about 65. And he says, Hey honey, you're still a hottie. And uh, he wasn't just being nice. He said, you're, you're, you're beautiful. You're, you're a hottie. We're going to go to Egypt. And guess what? The people in Egypt, they're going to see you. And they're going to want to take you from me. And guess what they might do? Because you're beautiful, they might kill me to get to you. So you need to tell them that you and I are brother and sister. Like I said, I hope you've never had that conversation with your wife. Unless you're from Louisiana, that conversation is not allowed to happen. There, it might actually happen, all right? So, uh, you know, when it comes to them, they have this conversation. And guess what? Pharaoh sees Sarah, who's 65, okay? I don't know what skin cream she is using, but if they had it today, you could make millions off of that skin cream because she's 65, all right? And Pharaoh sees her. And sees how beautiful she was. Get out. Man, ladies, I'm telling you what. Some of you are like, yeah, I want to look good at 65. Just do what Sarah did. We don't know. Study it out for yourself. You might find it and make a miracle cream or something. So Sarah's there in Egypt. Pharaoh sees Sarah. And Pharaoh, guess what? Takes her into the palace. And says, hey, okay. Hey, you, you guys are just brother and sister. So I'm about to marry Sarah. This is what the Pharaoh is thinking. Egypt was the superpower of that day, okay? They were uh, far beyond technologically advanced. They were just, they were just, it. this is the world's superpower, okay? And so Pharaoh is going to take Sarah to be his wife, but then God appears to Pharaoh and says, hey, I will kill you and I will kill everybody in this land unless you give Abraham back his wife. And all of a sudden, God had to tell him, No, Abraham lied. That's not his sister. That's his wife. So Pharaoh, out of fear for God, gives Sarah back to Abraham and tells Abraham, leave our land. Okay, you need to get out. Well, at this time, Abraham was able to wheel and deal and make some money, and he's able to buy some more servants. He's able to grow his lands. And so he and Lot leave Egypt, and then they go back to where they originally were. And that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter number 13. And let's open the Bible. If not, it'll be up on the screen and you can look at it. And let's kind of track with me in the story in this passage, number Genesis 13, verse number one. The Bible says this. And Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the south. 
And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. He had originally, when God first led him to the land of Canaan, he built an altar there, and he worshiped God there. And I love how as he leaves Egypt, the first place he goes back to is Bethel, the first place. And we're going to dive into that this morning, what that means. Let's continue reading verse number five. And Lot also, which was with Abraham, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, that their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelled in the land. And Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife, I pray thee between me and you and between my herdmen and thy herdmen for we are brethren this morning the message is entitled can't we all just get along i need you to understand something in this passage the fight had broken out not between lot and abraham the fight broke out between his herdmen but the fight escalates to abraham and lot You see, it's a little thing that then grew. But here's the fact that Scripture even mentions two other tribes that lived in the land. The Scripture mentions that there's the Canaanites and there's the Parasites. They also lived in the land. And this fight had gotten so big, these two other tribes knew the drama. Now, I can use a modern-day illustration. Why is it that people unrelated to your family know the drama about your family? And it's oftentimes because you just blast it all over Facebook or you just pick up that phone, you text people. And there's all kinds of people that know about the drama and trauma in your family. When Why? Because we just broadcast it out there and people are watching. So we need to be careful about the testimony that we have as believers. The Bible says how good and how beautiful it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And so here Abraham and Lot they have strife Abraham is older Abraham's more mature Abraham is the patriarch of the family Abraham takes the lead and says hey this is what we need to do Lot we don't need to fight we're brethren we're family we should not be fighting all families fight your family my family but why does our families fight is there a way to get our families to stop fighting We fight about things that are trivial. We fight about things that are are meaningless. We say hurtful things. We do unkind things. And why is that? It shouldn't be. It's not God's plan for us. But why do families fight so much? And to find the answer, we're going to study Scripture. But let's ask God's help one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to hearts. I pray that you would take a very short passage of Scripture. A passage of scripture that at face value kind of seems something like we would just gloss over as we read our Bibles. But I pray right now that you would speak to hearts. I pray right now that you would help our families to not just get along, but to grow. I pray that your spirit would be felt in our lives. I pray that you would speak to those who need something this morning. I know this message is about hurting and fighting families, but there might be some other needs in this room. And I don't know how to deal with them, but your Holy Spirit can. And I pray that you would work in a mighty way. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Why do families fight? I mean, after all, haven't you been going on date nights with your wife? Haven't you been taking out your families on nice family vacations? Haven't you been spending all that extra time with your family? Haven't you been buying your kids all those expensive uh, technological gadgets? Haven't you even taken them to counseling? Hey, you took them to the doctor and they started putting them on beta blockers and they started putting them on this stuff and that stuff and shouldn't everything be okay? I mean, after all, you're doing everything that they said to do right. You're doing it. But why do our families still fight? I mean, real talk for a second. My wife and I will go on dates and it's supposed to be a special time, a romantic time. But we fought on the date about where we're going to go eat. And when we get there, we fight about how much money we should spend. We fight about are we sharing or are we each getting our own. And by the end of the night, we're more frustrated that we went on a date than if we hadn't gone on a date. So some of you are sitting here and say, don't tell me about date night. Because we're doing good until we have date night. And date night just messes everything up. And so when you hear preachers get up and say, you need to take your wife on a date night. You want to crawl in the corner and cry because that's why your marriage isn't doing well in the first place. Because you haven't gotten over the last date night. And so when it comes to things like date night, we think, well, well, well that was it. And that's what the book told me. Every book is going to tell you to go on date night, all right? Every book is going to tell you to spend time with your family. But the problem is, it's not fixing the problem. Isn't that interesting? You still have the same issues. You still argue just as much. You can even argue on the family vacation. You can still fight while you're on the expensive trip that you can't afford to Hawaii. You still argue about what we're going to do and why weren't you ready on time. And the fight just kind of accentuates. And I mean, you're, you're trying to do all these things that you know you should do. But have you ever thought for a moment that if date night was so important and if family vacation was so important that it, if it did have the power to transform your family, don't you think God would have said it in his word? I mean, real talk for a second. We put such an emphasis on the family. We put such an emphasis on couples. But <laughs> I don't see God saying, Abraham, you and Sarah just aren't having your date night. Come on. I mean, what happened? Friday night at Chili's. You guys have been neglecting that. That's why your marriage is screwed up. And for some of you, you feel so guilty. Like, what is wrong? I'm just not getting that date night. I'm just not getting that time. What's wrong is you are expecting something in your marriage to do more than it's capable of doing. How can I illustrate it? Date night is like a double-A battery for your marriage. It has a little power, a little bit. It'll charge it a little bit. It's good. But guess what? It's not enough. And it runs out of juice. And you say, well, we'll just do more. But it doesn't have the power. You're looking for something to do more than it's supposed to do And the problem is, you look for your spouse to be something more for you than they have the ability to be. Let me go a little bit deeper. I'm trying not to go over your heads, but here's the reality. It's called codependency. You are depending on your spouse to meet your every desire. To fulfill you emotionally, spiritually, sexually, mentally. You're looking for your spouse to meet it all. Because that's kind of what you thought would happen when you got married. And it doesn't happen. And you're trying every date night. You're trying every um, psychiatrist. You're trying every medicine. You're trying diets. You're trying to spice things up. You're trying to go on these expensive vacations. And you're like, why isn't it changing? 
Because God didn't say that's what was going to change it. God never in his word promises that if you'll just do those things, that it'll transform it. God promises three things. This isn't the message. This is all introduction. The three things God promises to work in your marriage that'll transform your families are three things that when I say it, there'll be a collective, uh. Because God promises to bless his word in your marriage. He promises that his word will not return void. That as you open the Bible and you say, God, I can't change her, I can't change the children, but God, your word can change me, and if you can change me, maybe your word will change her and change them, and if that could happen, maybe we could have a different family. Because God promises to use his word. He doesn't promise to use date night. I'm not against date night. Go on date night. Get in a date night. It's fun. It's great. But God promises to use his word. But what happens in the family, I can talk to people and they say, hey, where is scripture in your family? We say it's important. We say it's valuable. You see, Abraham, he had lost sight of some things, and he goes back to an altar. There's an old quote I heard a long time ago. It says a family altar would alter many a family. You say, what do you mean a family altar? A place where as a family together you seek God. Together as a family, you open up God's word and you say, well, it's hard, it's difficult. Where you look at the scripture and you say, you know what? This word has the promise to change my life. Hebrews chapter number four, verse number 12. It says God's word is alive, it's quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This word can change. But what happens is we would rather go on date night than get this. And then we're really frustrated and we're really upset that date night didn't fulfill. Because you're wanting it to do something that it can't. This is a deep cell battery right here. You say, what is a deep cell battery? They're stinking heavy batteries that you stick in boats. That's a deep cell battery. Where you're looking for your double A battery to to jumpstart your marriage and it just can't. It's not able to. It's like you backing up your big rig next to a Ford Fiesta and thinking that Ford Fiesta is going to be able to jumpstart your big rig. It's not going to happen. There's no juice there. There's no power. God says, my word has the power. God says, I'll bless my word. God says, hey, I'll bless prayer. You see, God says, you have not because you ask not. God says, hey, knock and I will open. Seek and you will find. See, what happens in our marriage is we're looking for something to do more than it's capable of doing. And we need to get back to some simple fundamentals here. We know the fundamentals when it comes to sports. We know that there needs to be basic conditioning. We know that there's hand-eye coordination. We know that there's, there's jumping, there's running. We know the basics when it comes to fundamentals of other things. But what about the fundamentals of our Christian faith? That it comes back to, hey, am I praying prayers over my spouse and over my children and over my life? Am I asking God to use prayer in the way that he promises to bless it? God promises to answer prayer. But what's amazing is we don't utilize it. Thirdly, this is all bonus material here. God promises to use his Holy Spirit to speak to hearts. If you go to Romans chapter number eight and verse number 26, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit who which prays for you day and night with groanings that cannot be uttered. Meaning this, the Holy Spirit understands how you're feeling, understands what you're going through, understands discouragement, distress. It understands being broken. It understands being defeated. And the Holy Spirit goes to God, the very throne room of God, and stands before God and says, my child, my daughter, who you see, who is hurting, who is broken, who is weeping, who is discouraged, who is defeated, they need you, Right now, God, 
And the Holy Spirit does that for you day and night while you're sleeping, while you're eating, while you're discouraged, while you're thinking, can I make it through another day? While you're there thinking, I'm just going to take these pills and end it. While you're there thinking, I'm just going to jump off this bridge and be done with it. While you're loading your 45 and just thinking, I'm done. While you're sitting at the bar just thinking, I'm just going to drink it all away. While you're trying to escape the pain, God says, my Holy Spirit goes before the throne room of God and intercedes on your behalf. Saying, that's my child who's hurting. That's my child who is suffering. And we need to do something about it. But what often happens is we look at the Holy Spirit and we look at the word of God and we look at prayer and we think, I tried date night. I tried the family vacation. But we're still fighting. So I'm going to pack it up. Peace out. It was a good run. And I'm done. That's real talk right there. That's where our world's at. That's where churches across America are at. Because I can get up and talk about date night. And I can talk about, you just need to be more intimate with your spouse. And I can talk about all these things that you need to, you just need to do. And man, we, we eat that stuff up. You would be clapping, you'd be shouting, we'd have a good time, and just good time in church. But the reality is, God says, hey, this is what I will use because... Only that has the power to break into, and I'm going to say it, our sinful, depraved, desperate, dirty, wicked, sinful, and rebellious hearts. And I know I look at a crowd this morning, you are beautiful, you are handsome, you are dressed up, you are nice, you are clean cut. But underneath all that, we have one thing in common, a wicked and deceitful heart that is broken. And date night does not change your heart. The vacation will not change your wife's heart. The expensive gifts do not change your child's heart. I wish they would. I bought my kids anything they wanted the other day. I just said, hey, what do, what do you guys want? Took them and got a, and got a gift, you know? I went to the dollar store. Anything you want. <laughs> Come on. Matter of fact, you can have three things. Any three things. I'm telling, When they're little, you can get away with this stuff, parents. You don't need to go to Toys R Us. Come on. You're on a budget now, all right? Any three things. You know how long their joy lasted? Not even the afternoon. And you're thinking the vacation's going to heal the deep wounds? You're thinking the, 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 the expensive Tiffany's jewelry is going to heal it? It's a band-aid on a wound that is so deep. It's a band-aid for a broken femur. It's not going to work. And you're wanting something to do more than it's capable. And at the very best, that is codependency, and at the very least that is idolatry because you're looking to something other than God to do what only God could promise to do. And I hate to say it, church, but we are full of idolatry because we'll go to a psychiatrist before we'll go to God. We'll go to some book before we go to God. Hey, we'll go to our friend before we'll go to God. Hey, we will try everything we can think of to fix our families. And then we step back and say, didn't work. God didn't work. You never tried God. Are you kidding me? I can find churches that will tell me exactly what I want to hear. Come on, there's 2,887 churches in San Jose alone. That's 1,000 more than L.A. has. We are a church city. You can find a church that will tell you exactly what you want to hear. But what you need is somebody to slap you upside the head and say, guess what? We are sinful, we are depraved, and we need a God that will come and transform us. And only he can. And I'll tell you what, that message is not very popular, as you can see by the empty seats. Real talk. 
This is not even the message we're about to dive into. We're talking about family, fighting. Why do we fight? First of all, write this down if you want. We fight because we've been taught to fight for our rights. Think about it. It's a very American thing to fight for our rights. Since you grew up, you've heard nothing but fight for your rights. Fight for human rights. Fight for civil rights. Fight for women's rights. Fight for the whale's rights. Fight for the dolphin's rights. Fight for everybody's rights. We just fight for rights. So when you got in the marriage, when you got in the family, guess what you did? You fought for your rights. You were taught to. That's what we were programmed to do. It's very American to fight. We have, we have taken Christianity and we have westernized it. And I'm very American. Trust me, I love our country. I think there's some very good things about it. But when you approach the word of God with our American westernized Christianity, we have come so far afoot from what God said he wanted. Never once did Jesus teach a message that said, fight for your rights. Never once when he had the only right, the only right, who was perfect, sinless, holy, blameless, without spot, without blemish, the only perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of God who could stand before a holy God. Only he was the one that was perfect. He had every right. But what did he do with his rights? The Bible says in Isaiah, he was led as a lamb, dumb before the shears, was led to the slaughter. He went silently. He submitted his rights. And he said, I will die for a broken and wicked 21st century preacher by the name of Micaiah Ermler. I will lay down everything for him. And I will let the Romans beat me. I will let them mock me. I will let them strip me naked and bare. I will let them grab me by my beard and rip it out. I will let them take a crown of thorns with thorns that are three inches deep that will swell my head up to uh, twice its normal size. I will let them push that and push it on my head and let the thorns break through my scalp. I will then let them lay a cross on my shoulder as they mock me and kick me and spit on me. And I will march to Calvary one step after step after step and I will listen to this the crowds jeer and scorn and mock when three days before they were crying Hosanna Hosanna king him make him our king and now they are screaming crucify him crucify him crucify him and Jesus walked with all his rights and he said I submit them on the cross of Jesus Christ that's what he did with his rights so tell me about your rights So tell me about your rights in that family. So tell me why you're right to argue with your spouse. So tell me why you're right to fight with your parents. So tell me. Guess what? At the foot of the cross, our arguments suck. They don't work. You say, well, I'm justified in my own self. She did this and it was wrong. It was wrong. It was wrong. But at the foot of the cross, it doesn't matter. Because Jesus was right, he was right, he was right, he was right, he was right. But he still died for you and me. And the example is this, that he laid down his life. He asked us to lay down our rights. We fight because we've been taught to fight for our rights. And it is American. And it is Western. But it is not true biblical Christianity. Now, I'm not saying become a divine doormat where people are just able to kick you to the curb. We are talking about matters of family. In matters of family, the fighting is because we have been programmed and taught to fight. 
But you need to understand, we fight because we have that thirst to be first. Also, we fight because we want something that we are not getting. You fight because there is something you want that you are not getting. My children, my son, Austin, my daughter, Megan, fight because they want the toy that the other person wants. And Megan won't give it to Austin. And that's why they're fighting. And it's a silly, stupid illustration. But you fight with your coworker because they are not giving you the printer. They are not giving you the office time. They are not giving you the refund. They are not giving you the promotion. You fight with your spouse because they are not giving you sexual fulfillment. They are not giving you the emotional support. They are not giving you something that you desperately want. And you feel justified in taking and so you fight. But once again, I say, your rights compared to Jesus do your rights still matter? Now, I want to be very careful because we could take this to a very unhealthy extreme. We could take this to a point where it should not be taken. Understand in moderation, we need to understand that, 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 that when it comes to laying down our rights in the family, I'm talking about laying down your rights about who gets what and preferring one another. Because if I look at a situation where Jane and I are arguing and fighting, I have to say to Jane, I want something that you're not giving me. And when she knows that, then I can stop. And then she can say, I want something that, Micaiah, you're not giving me. And we both realize that we are fighting over something that is irrelevant and is not worth fighting. There's an alternate solution. But understand this, in the human nature, you fight because you want something that you are not getting. And all through life and all through uh, our culture, we see people, that's why they fight. James even said it. James chapter number four, verse number one, it says, whence come wars? The preacher asks, where do war come from? Great question, right? Very relevant question. I mean, think about it. Why do we have war today? In our modern, civilized countries, why is there still war? I thought we fought the war to end all wars back in the 1940s. I thought that was done. They said, we've ended all the wars. There shouldn't be any more wars. There shouldn't be any more fighting. There should be total 100 disarmament across the world. And that's what CNN, that's what politicians want. That's what people are fighting for. But why hasn't it happened? Because one country wants your oil. Another country wants your fame. Another country wants your IPO. Wants your stock market. Wants your land, wants your resources. And until we get to the point where we say, you know what? No, I, I don't need that. I don't want that. You see, James even said it. From whence come wars, fightings among you? Come they not even from your own lust, which war in your members? But I need you to understand, usually it is our pride that we use to get something. It's our pride. But the problem is, maybe you've heard the old phrase, you may have won the battle, but you lost the war. See, when you fight in the home, you mark it down. Some of you here, you are superb at arguing your point. You could be Perry Mason if you wanted to because you are so good with your words. And that was a throwback to some of you. 
And just watch me TV and you will see some Perry Mason if you want to. Old school lawyer, if still entertaining, it's clean, but maybe something a little bit more modern. And you like law and order. You like something where, man, they argue their case. And sometimes we like those people that, man, they're just so articulate and they know each word and they know exactly what to say. You know what I am? I'm the guy five, ten minutes after we've argued and had a fight. I'm walking away thinking about what I can say. And then when I'm taking a shower, all of a sudden I have all the answers. And man, I just let that shower head have it. I should have said this. Just go off. Because I can always think I'm a day late and a dollar short. Always. But usually our arguments are all based on pride. You see, when you give into the fight, I want you to understand you can win that battle, but you're going to ultimately lose the war. You say, why? Third, write this down. We're fighting a losing battle. You say, what do you mean? Because you need to ask yourself this very important question when you are in an argument. You're saying, hey, we haven't got to any scripture yet. We will. Hang with me another minute. Your final losing battle because when you fight at your workplace for the business plan, guess what? You win the business plan. When you fight for the sales opportunity and you win, guess what you win? The sales opportunity. When you fight on a football field and you score the touchdown, guess what you won? My question is this. What do you win when you fight with your spouse? Let me say what we're all thinking. Nothing. Let's go deeper. What do you win when you fight with your children? Nothing. You say, no, 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 no. I punch this hand through that wall, I get something. A hurt hand. Real talk. You say, I'm going to get my way, I'm going to get my rights, and it's going to be how I want it to be done. And at the end of it, what do you get? Nothing. It's a losing battle. But actually, I should say you do get something. Something that we don't often think. Something we definitely don't want. The Bible says, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I heard one preacher talk two days ago about this exact same passage, and he grossly, grossly undermined what God did. He said, it's like God just kind of ignores you. And I said, wrong. You're wrong. God doesn't ignore you. God opposes you. You say, what do you mean? I'm going to borrow my favorite person using illustration. D, can you stand up for a second? I always use D. He's always right there. He just jumps right up for it. He's bigger than me. He's taller than me. He's got a better beard than me. He's just better in every way, okay? Here's what happens. I'm resisting something bigger. It's not like, D, can you just turn your back? Many of you think that's what God does to you when you're, when you're upset. D, I need you to do something. I know you don't want to. I need you to just push me back. Just push me. I mean, real good. Don't even mess around. Like, for real. Come on, push. No, that, that's weak. God doesn't push like that, okay? That's a girly man push. Come on, push. Harder, harder, harder. Push. I mean, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. That's what it means. Keep pushing. Don't stop. We're illustrating. Come on, come on. There we go. That's what it means to oppose. That's what it means to oppose. And many of you think, God's just ignoring me when I'm proud. No, God says, I oppose you. You say, but I'm a child of God. God says, I oppose you. No matter what, God binds himself to his word. And his word that says, I love you, is the same word that says, hey, if you're going to give in to pride in that relationship, as soon as you do, just know you've got this for an enemy. God doesn't ignore you. He opposes you. So what do you get when you fight? You get an enemy. And it's not your spouse. 
though you want to make your spouse the enemy. And it's not your teenager, though you may want to make your teenager the enemy. It's God. And may that, the next time we want to throw in, get into a fight, may that stop us for one moment to think, do I want God as my enemy? Life is hard. Life is tough. Life is beat you up. Life is cruel sometimes. I need God helping me as much as I can get him. I do not need him opposing me. So the next time you step into a boardroom, classroom, bedroom, no matter what it is, pride is not going to work. I say it like this. Your ego is not your amigo. You can write that down. Touch the neighbor next to you and say your ego is not your amigo. Because a lot of times we think my ego is what's going to get it done. And they say wear a little chip on your shoulder as big as a boulder and you're going to make it happen. Thank you. Do you have a seat? But understand, that's why we fight. But here, in this passage, we've reverse engineered why we fight. We see it. But let's go a little bit deeper, if we can, in the last few remaining moments that we have. You see, many of you are thinking, if I just had that thing, then I'd be happy. If I just had that spouse, if I just had that person in my life, or if I just drove that car, then I'd be happy. And then I I just wouldn't want anything. And I'd be content and I'd be satisfied. And that's what you're thinking this morning. And you're wrong because the Bible says, for the eyes of man are never satisfied. And here in this passage, we have two people that want something. Lot needs more land. His herdmen are fighting because he wants to increase his wealth. Abraham needs land. And there's not enough land for the two of them. And so they're fighting each other. There's strife. It's split in the family. And all of a sudden, we see one character, the patriarch of the family, Abraham, stand up. And Abraham says, we're brothers. We don't need to fight. We, and I, we both want the same thing. But guess what? We're not going to fight about this. We are both going to work out a solution. And so here's what Abraham does. Even though he's the patriarch of the family, he has seniority in the family. Abraham says, hey, Lot, you pick what direction and what land you want. It's in this passage. Let's go to chapter number nine. Let's read it real quick. Here's what the Bible says. I'm going to pull it up right here. Sorry, I lost it for a second. I just want to read it to you. It says in verse number nine, is not the whole land before us? Separate yourself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will take the right. Or if thou depart to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan that was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And they, as thou comest unto Zor, then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves one for the other. Here's the problem with this passage. You need to understand, Abraham had first dibs, but he gave up his rights. My mom always had a famous saying growing up. Whenever me and my six other siblings were fighting, she would say to one of us, one of you just has to die to yourself. One of you just has to die to your rights and just let it go. Just let it go. Here, Abraham, at this point, he says, we're brethren. Let's not fight. You just need one person in the family to say, let's not fight. We just need one person in the middle of the argument to say, let's not do this. Just need one person to say, this isn't worth it. Just need one person to say, you and I are both going to go to bed upset about this. We don't need to. There's no reason. This isn't that big of a deal. We can work out a solution. Let's unite together. Let's not oppose each other. And Abraham said, I will be that person. He stands up. But how could Abraham do that? How could Abraham handle this situation with so much grace? And I go back to a place called Bethel. 
Because we see that Abraham left Egypt, a place of spiritual backsliding, a place where he made some terrible decisions, a place where, may I remind you, that he picked up Hagar, the one that he was going to have the illicit relationship with his wife on. That's where he found her. This is all the problems started there. But from there, he goes back to Bethel. And Bethel, you know what it means? You might want to write this down. Bethel means the house of God. Interesting, isn't it? That as soon as he wanted to get back to God, he went to Bethel, the house of God. I want to say to you this morning, though there is nothing special about our church, we do believe this is the house of God. Now, it is not the only house of God, but we believe that when we come here, things change because the Spirit of God is here. There is something that happens in the atmosphere. That There is an energy about it. There is love that is here. There is peace that is here. There is a joy that is here. And things just change. And I can say by personal testimony, it wasn't until we as a church came to this theater that the general manager of the theater said something has happened in our theater. Our revenue literally has gone up since you guys started being here. And I said, you know what? I attribute that to God's favor, overflowing God's church and landing on the other people. Because just like Joseph, when he went to Egypt, God blessed Joseph, other people benefited by the blessing. When you go to your place of employment, when you go to your school, when you ever God sends you, there should be a blessing overflowing your life that others are blessed by you. Because you are a Christian and other people take notice. And so Abraham goes back to this place, the house of God. And it's at the house of God, Bethel wasn't just a place that he went. Bethel stands for three things. It was a place of remembrance. It was a place where he remembered where that God said he would take care of him. It was a place where he first got to the land of Canaan, that God first spoke to him and said, Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants like the sands of the seashore. That's what he told Abraham. And guess what? Abraham was 75 years old. A little bit old to have that many children. But it was there that God promised him a blessing. It was there that God said, I'll take care of you. It is there that God said, I'll give you a land. And so Abraham comes back to Bethel and he remembers that God promised me back then he would take care of me. And now Abraham's in a situation. And I was talking with uh, one of the dear brothers in the church just before the service. And I said something interesting about this passage. Not only was there not enough land for uh, Abraham and Lot, there's two other tribes, the Canaanites and the Parasites that are there, okay? Now, Parasites, I mean, Parasites, it's in there, okay? You get what I mean, all right? Two other tribes. So if there's not enough land to go around, we often think that, well, there's land over here and there's land over there. Let's not fight. No, there was not enough land. And when Abraham said, Lot, you pick, Abraham was saying, I leave nothing for myself. Look at the passage. That's what it meant. The Canaanites had taken everything and then the Perizzites had taken everything else. What's left for Abraham? Nothing. He had to trust God, didn't he? So he goes back to Bethel. And so this is a big trust moment for him because he just said, Lot, you can take everything. And guess what? Lot said, all right. His motto was, somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. Might as well be you. Just you got to lose, I'm going to win. And he said, no, I'm, I'm taking it then. I'll take it. So here's a place of remembrance that he had to say, you know what? God, you took care of me then. You need that place. You need a Bethel. If you're going to go and you're going to thrive in your family, there's got to be a point where you say, you know what, God? You've taken care of me before. There's got to be some mile markers along the journey of your life where you say, God, you were there. You took care of me. I'm going to trust you again. I grew up in kind of an old school church, and we used to sing these things called hymns. And some of you may remember some of the hymns that we used to sing. And I still get these hymns. They're kind of deep inside of me. And one of them is old school. It says, we have an anchor that's steadfast and sure. 
sure, and it keeps the soul. Even though the billows roll, I'm fastened to a rock that cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. There's another one I like. It's called the mighty fortress is our God. And I know it seems old school, and I know it seems antiquated, but I think of that imagery, and I think of that a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood, all mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us well. He craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is none his equal, but a mighty fortress is our God. Or I think of another one. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. And sometimes I think about those old hymns and I think about the power and I think about the meaning and I think about those times where I'm not sure how I'm going to face tomorrow, when I'm not sure I can get up for another day, where I'm not sure that I can get the strength to go back to work, where I'm not sure if I can get the strength to go back to the relationship, where I'm not sure I can get the strength to go on another day. But God says, hey, I'm your strength. I'm your Bethel. I'm your house. I will be there in the storm. You can trust me no matter what you face. You need that Bethel. You need a place of remembrance. So this morning, what is your Bethel? What is that place that when life seems to be dashing you and crashing you against the rock, that you could say, I trust in one who will not waver, in one who will not wave, one who will not abandon me. I trust in Jesus. He is my cleft in the rock. He is my fortress. He is my high tower. But I keep on going on. I love these verses. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, a solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I dare not trust on any other ground. On Christ alone, I'll trust. I understand these words and I I read them and my heart begins to burn because I think of the power that God says that he will take care of us. And Abraham, he had that place. He looked back and remembered how good God has been. You need to look back over your life and think, God, you've been there. You've helped me. You've taken care of me. Bethel was a place of remembrance. Bethel was a place of revelation. You see, at the end of this passage, God doesn't speak to to Abraham. You see, what do you mean? He goes through all of this situation and, and, and God doesn't say anything until the very end of this passage. The end, God comes to Abraham in verse number 14. After he had given away all the land, after he told the little upstart nephew, you can take whatever you want. I'm just taking God. God comes to Abraham and the Lord said unto Abraham after that lot was separated. Sometimes you got to step out before you figure out how it's going to turn out. And that's when God shows up. And some of you, you want to sit in the safety and comfort of your life and comfort, comfort of, what God, of what you know instead of understanding that God says, I will meet you out there. I will be there in the storm. It was after he made the right decision that God came to him. And here's what he said. He said, lift up now thine eyes. Look from the place where thou standest. Look north, south, east, and west. It's all yours. Think back for a second. He said, Lot, if you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I go right. He thought he was just going to get a little, little piece of what was left. God said, no, Abraham. Because God says, I save the best for those who leave the choice with me. You see, if you will let God decide your future, your fate, God says, I will save the best for you. And God said, hey, Abraham, look. Look at this, all of this. He said, look at this land. It's all going to be yours. 
And then he tells Abraham something very interesting. He says, and I will make your seed great as the dust of the earth. And he said in verse number 17, arise and walk throughout it. What that meant back then, you don't understand it today. We, we don't understand this terminology, but it's powerful. See, today you go to a real estate agent and you say, I want to I buy this piece of property. And I, I want to buy where the Oak Ridge Mall sits. And I just want to buy it all. And you look at a map, but back then they didn't, they didn't have the maps. And so what you would do is if you wanted to buy land, is, is you would walk through all, all the land that you wanted to buy. And so God says, Abraham, you don't have to buy it. It's already bought. You just got to claim it. So to claim it, you got to arise and walk. And some of you, the message this morning is, you don't have to buy it. It's already bought. Just arise and walk. Just get up off your feet and walk. Just get up off your feet and walk and claim that God's going to take care of your family. Just get up off your feet and believe that God is going to meet you there. You don't have to wonder. God says, I'll give it to you. Just get up off your feet and walk and claim it. It's already paid for. God loves your family far more than you could love your family. God loves your children more than you could love your family. But God wants you to get up off your feet and just walk and claim it. God says, just go through it. Just go through your business. You say, my business is not doing too well. Then get up off your feet and just walk through it and say, God, you gave me this. He says, my home's not doing too well. Then you get up in the middle of the night when everybody else is sleeping. Everybody else is getting their Z's and you can't sleep. And you just walk through your house, every room, every step, and you just pray over it. You say, I I, I don't know what God is doing at my workplace. And I don't know if I'm going to lose my job. Then you get out there early before you start working. You start circling your workplace. You start walking around it. Some of you don't know the story about Southridge. We're only 18 months old. But a few weeks before we were supposed to start this church, guess what? We lost our property. 25,000 homes I had personally knocked on, and I personally invited them. 25,000, all of that about to go to waste. All of it. Hours of work. I'd be out 8, 10 hours a day, nonstop, in the heat. And I used to wear a tie when I did it. I was dumb. I was dumb. But I would walk, and hours after hours, I'd have people on the side of the street. We had a, we had a hot street coming through, and there was this guy from another church he saw me and he was like you crazy man he was giving me gatorade just felt sorry for me he was driving this air-conditioned van following me giving me gatorade and i was like dude let me in the van you do this for a little bit you know and so i would just i would just walk and i'm just going through and just trusting god and then i got the call that they we lost our building i didn't know what to do but i was walking down blossom hill across the street discouraged it's like we gotta we gotta meet somewhere i don't know where we're gonna meet People were telling me, well, you can meet in the park, you can meet in the backyard. And I was just walking. I didn't even know, I hadn't even read this passage to arise and walk. Hadn't even gotten there. All I knew was just to walk. I knew just to talk to God. That was just walking. I was crossing by Burger King, walking down in front of the old Harbor Freight. There's an AT&T place, there's a Home Depot. And I look, and there's the theater. And it was like, Holy Spirit just put on my heart. You need to call them. So the first call I made was to Jane. <laughs> I said, I think I found a place for us to meet. But are you sitting down? I think we're going to meet in the theater. She said, what? Churches don't meet in the theater. I said, I know. But I just, something got me here. You ever had that? Just get you here? I didn't know. And then I called, and they said, we'll get back to you. And I said, look, I'm just a poor old Baptist. You know, I always use that line when I need to save some money. Just a poor old Baptist, don't have a lot of money. <laughs> and they lowered the price. And I said, yeah, you can rent it. Here's the miracle. Here's the miracle. 
I've talked to three other churches. All three said, we went to that mall. We went to that theater. We had a launch team. We had saved up money. We had a game plan. We had set up a kiosk in the mall to start a church in that theater. And we never got it going. They said no. I talked to another guy. He said, man, I was going to start a church. And he said, I tried to go to that theater. They said no. I talked to another church, another guy recently, about a month or two ago. He said, I tried to get in that theater for years. Never let us in. I think what happened was, it wasn't my breakthrough prayer. It wasn't my walk. It was that somebody else had paved a way. And God said, I'm going to reveal this to you. But you got to rise and walk. And I want you to take that this morning and understand that God says there is a Bethel. It is a place of response. It is a pray, place of revelation. But lastly, notice there's a place of response. We're going to close it up right here. We have to. You say, what do you mean the response? Bethel sat between, there's Bethel, and then there's another little city. The city was named by the Ai. In your Bibles, it's H-A-I. The H is silent. It means Ai. I study what that name means because when you look at which way Lot went, Lot didn't go to Shiloh or Bethel. He went to Ai first, and then he went down. You know what Ai means? Ruin. You see, Abraham, his response was, I'm going to choose the house of God. Lot's response was, I'll choose Ai. Ruin. We don't have time. But this week, do some homework. And look what find, look what happened a lot in Genesis chapter number 19. I'll fast forward, spoiler alert. His wife dies. He loses his family. And I'm sorry to say it, he commits incest with his two daughters in a cave. And that's Lot's legacy. That's it. He lost the land. He lost his wealth, his position, everything because of his response. I believe that Bethel is a place of response. I believe the house of God is a place of response. I believe God wants a response from us. What direction are we going to choose? See, once our direction is set, the destination is already determined. I'll say it again. Once our direction is set, the destination is already determined. Once I get on the five headed south, guess what? I'm going to L.A., If I stay on the five, I'm going to hit L.A. See, I don't want to go to L.A. If I stay on the five south, I'm going to hit L.A. Some of you say, man, I'm just going to keep up with my drinking problem. I'll tell you where you're going to end up. See, I'm just going to keep on with my um, prescription problem. I'll tell you where you're going to end up. So you need to make a choice. You need to make a decision this morning. Or maybe the decision to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who is worthy. He will save you. Let's stand.